Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Hi, everyone. My name is Catherine Bischoff. I am uh, the VP of strategy here at the factory, factory Berlin, factory number one, we're going to call it now because we're, uh, a lot of us are over at uh, factory Goritza Park. So for those of you who are not factory members, and are there non-factory members here or is everyone? <laughs> a few. Okay. Factory. Factory is a, a members club for people that are really interested in making strong connections in the digital ecosystem and the startup community here in Berlin. We have now, to date, uh, well over 2,000 members here. So that ranges from individual talents to startups to corporates that are here to engage with each other, find investment, hire, uh, test their products, prototype, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we've really nailed uh, the, the strong community aspects. We hope a, a lot of you come out to our events. We host over 300 events a year. and. Uh, and they're pretty fun. We do everything from a great Halloween or a St. Paddy's Day party all the way to fireside chats with really important founders from across the globe and anything in between. A lot of our community members put on some of our best events uh, where they share their knowledge and expertise and, uh, and guide their, their fellow community members. That's the factory. And today it's, we're here to talk about SeedCamp and SeedCamp's philosophy in investing and uh, hear about two of their recent investments here in Berlin, which is pretty exciting for us and for the entire Berlin ecosystem. So I'm really happy uh, to introduce Carlos to you, Carlos Espinal, who is from SeedCamp and he's going in town just for a few days, so we're happy that he's made the, the slight time in the schedule uh, to introduce uh, SeedCamp to you for those who don't know it and then get some insight into, uh, into investment practices. So welcome, Carlos, and hope you have a good evening. Thank you for the reception, very, very warm reception. So we're going to kick off first by having you guys introduce yourselves, since you'll be far better at pitching yourselves than I will. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go into um, some questions. And then as, as, they, as they start telling their stories, I would encourage you guys to start thinking about the questions you'd like to ask them as they've gone through the journey, maybe maybe one year ahead of where you guys are. So maybe we start with you, Laura. Maybe you yeah, want to share what you're sure. working on and... Is it, is it, yeah, it's working now. Hi, I'm Laura, um, and I'm here with, uh, together with Till, and we're, we're with Bricks, and we're essentially fixing everything that's wrong with private pension in Germany, and furthermore, Europe, um, by providing the first completely flexible and uh, digital pension without uh, commitment. So as you might hear from my accent, maybe I'm Austrian originally, so I have like this Arnie accent coming through from time to time. Um, actually, I have joined Briggs um, after Till started this thing. He was looking for somebody to as a completion to his financial skills. So I have, before I started Briggs with Till, I had nothing to do with financial products, which is great because right now I am building a product for people to understand it, right? Which is usually very hard if you're in the, in the material of financial products uh, themselves. So, yeah. This cool. Is, this is Samir? Me. Cool. Um, so, hello. I'm Samir. Um, I've, I've, I've worked with startups for around 10 years or so. So, uh, in fintech, insurtech, uh, dating, and health tech now. I suppose I, my specialty used to be sort of marketing, so anything to do with performance marketing, branding, growth, uh, growth hacking, above the line, above, below the line, et cetera. 
Um, now I'm the CEO of Doctorly, which is a health tech startup based in Berlin, kind of tackling that systemic lack of efficiency that we all know exists in, in pretty much every single country in the world. The mission of the company um, is to enable people to live healthier lives. Uh, version one of how we're going to get there is by building a practice management software for doctors. Um, next time you're in your doctor practice, ask your doctor to turn the computer around, and you'll 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 see what I mean. It's it's like a time machine. It's like he turns the computer on and it goes do 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 do. You know, it's like Windows 95 MS DOS kind of situation. So we're building that sort of to to bring them here uh, to modernize their data strategy and how they store personal health data, etc. And the second product we're building is a patient-facing digital account that will allow allow you to uh, communicate with your doctor digitally, to access your personal health records digitally, to get analytics based upon your um, interactions with the doctor, and of course, in an incredibly secure way, and we'll be launching in Germany Q3, Q4 this year. Thank you, Samir. All right, so these guys are, as I mentioned earlier, just a little bit ahead of where you are. You know, you heard Samir, he has yet to launch, but there's some founder market fit there, and that's why we invested, and then, of course, with what you're doing, Lara, we can kick off with you. There was some skepticism that Seedcamp team had about sort of the desire of the demographic of your product to actually transact because we saw that that was very different in the UK versus, versus you know, the, the doc market. Maybe you can walk us through how you guys thought through your, your customer, your customer segmentation, and why it was relevant for them in a way that we didn't originally understand mm -hmm. in the UK. I mean, essentially, what we did, what you should always do, is we talked to as many people as possible, right? And we validated um, if there's actually this need uh, of people to save for their private pension. And what we figured out that is that people have this internal itchiness of, I need to do something, I need to save, but I'm not sure how, because I, I go into Google and I that's what people are telling us, and I go into Google and I Google private Altersvorsorge, and it's ridiculous what they find, right? It's super confusing, it's, excuse my language, the products are really shitty um, and super inflexible, so this is why um, we believe in what we've seen so far we're right uh, in fixing exactly the problems people are having when they're looking to save up for their pension. But it's, it's not that simple, right? There's, a, there's an element of, you have to make it mm. beautiful. You have to create trust. I mean, like putting your money anywhere requires trust. Exactly. So then how do you overcome the trust problem with your customer base? And then how do you even promise these kinds of returns? I mean, you know, mm. walk us through how you overcame some of these challenges. You're looking at Till now for the, for no, no, no. For the return part. No, I, I'm looking so at the dog. It's just really cute. Oh, the cute. dog. Yeah, I know. I, I brought a dog. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the high pitch noise, it's the dog. <laughs> um, so when it comes to trust, we fix it through or we, we solve it through transparency, essentially, right? So we... We, we, our product is so transparent and understandable for people. We speak the language people speak. We don't speak finance, um, blah. Um, and uh, this is essentially how we, how we fix the trust issue on this side. Um, and in the end, literally, whatever happens to us, your money stays with you because it's your bank account. It's your money. There is nothing, there's literally nothing that can go wrong in this, in this sense. And when it comes to how we, pro so I would never say promise <laughs> the return, um, but um, what we do is we invest in very low risk uh, ETFs and ETFs only. We don't actively manage the fund. So uh, this is something which uh, is why we, we can, I'm going to do this now, promise um, the 3%. And what makes uh, our product so amazing is that we have this uh, risk buffer, right? which brings the 
kind of an insurance um, uh, side to it, um, where everyone who starts saving with us, part of your savings yearly um, after profit going to this buffer, and for this one case in a thousand years, um, when things should go wrong and the money you have paid in when you retire is lower than what it should actually be worth, then the buffer jumps in. Okay, so cool. That gives you an idea of how the product works and, and how they thought about addressing the need of their customer. We haven't quite answered the question about trust, though. We're going to have to come back to that, but maybe some of you can tackle it from the I can. I have, I have oh the no, I'm, gi I'm giving you five minutes to think about that one. Okay. Samir, it's your turn. Walk us through how do you jump into a market where literally you're dealing with people's sensitive information and you're convincing probably a group of people who aren't known for being the most technologically advanced. So how do you crack in that problem? Trust. It was, um, it was a, I suppose, a journey, and which we're still on, just to be clear. When we originally decided what we wanted to do, my co-founders and I, we knew we wanted to do health tech, but we were doing the obvious thing, which is thinking from a patient's perspective. Oh, it takes too long to book an appointment, blah, blah, blah. Luckily, one of my co-founders is a neurosurgeon, a brain surgeon of 17 years, and he kept passionately defending the, r the reasons that the patients had such a bad service sometimes. It wasn't the doctor's fault, it wasn't the doctor's fault. So. I suppose once we, do once we dove in to analyzing how the doctor had, the things they had to deal with, and really understanding that a doctor trains for a very long time to be a doctor, and suddenly they're doing 50, 60% um, admin uh, with their day. In Germany, the KBV, which is the, the, the governmental regulatory body for, for, for health, they, I think they published 60 working days a year for a, for a practice is how much time they spend on admin. And that's uh, when you take away holidays, weekends, etc. You, you get that feeling. So I guess one of the most important things from a trust perspective is that we have doctors in our team. We have uh, doctors investing in what we do. It's a regulated uh, product, meaning uh, before we can sell this to doctors who uh, treat state patients, we have to get uh, accreditation from the KBV, from the from the KBV. So once we go to the market, it's not a case of um, getting their trust because the government has already uh, given us the stamp of approval. It's more the trust that we, are, we understand what they're going through and we're tackling their real problems because the feedback I got from a lot of doctors is they don't really want to hear about chatbots at the moment. They don't really want to hear about even the video conferencing and things. They want to hear about tackling their real problems, which is the amount of time they're wasting on admin, uh, on billing, uh, on patients not turning up for their appointments, on uh, things like that. And the final part of your question, which is the big one for Germany, which is the, the data privacy. So there's, there's two or three things to consider. So the law in Germany basically dictates that the doctor is personally liable for your health data for 10 years. So if in nine years you ask your doctor for a scan or a blood test, something they have to give it to you, otherwise you could sue them, basically. So that's the law. The government doesn't say how the doctor should uh, store your data. So what we find in Germany is DVDs, they, yeah, I, my computer doesn't even have one. Um, I was, so DVDs, paper, is still quite popular uh, in a file. And uh, some of them have private servers, and they think they're so awesome. But these are private servers from like 1999. Uh, so they go in there once a day, spend about 40 minutes trying to uh, back up your data. Um, it's incredibly unsafe, actually. The paper could burn, could get taken. Uh, if the server breaks down, it's all over. If a scratch on the DVD happens, it's all over. So we're going to be one of the only, uh, one of the first practice management software is using the cloud. Uh, and this isn't just for the doctor or for the patient, it's for Germany. Um, if you don't have a standardization in data, it's incredibly impossible <laughs> to share it and to have any kind of big data 
work. And when you look at health, your doctor uses data to treat you. If they can't use data on a large scale, it's impossible to become a preventative force for medicine, and they will remain a uh, reactionary one, where they just say, what's the wrong with you? Do a blood test on you. Whereas they can't analyze, for example, your weight gain over time very well, or, or certain other factors that would indicate potential conditions that you may get. Um, so long-term vision is to help Germany standardize. Our security, while it's in the cloud and that's scary, is a billion times more safe than keeping it on paper in the office. Um, and then the availability of the data to the patient to be shared between doctors and to be analyzed on a, on a large scale is incredibly uh, valuable for the German government. Right, so it sounds like if you, if you, as long as you're complying with all the right rules for data and, and managing the data, you find yourself a customer whose pain is so high that they're just willing to trust you because it's just going to solve the problem. It's a combination of things. So GDPR it was terrifying and then actually is my greatest friend. Um, I would say anybody here who's going to do with anything to do with personal data, um, even if it's not highly sensitive like health data, you still read the 100-page document, read it. And it'll, it should make you feel better about what you're doing because if you're not doing the basics that they're listing in this document, you're, you shouldn't be in this industry. Um, it's like use encryption. Well, yeah, obviously, you know, end-to-end um, -end encryption. Well, yeah, obviously. It's just because the standard is so low, so many places, they had to put this in place. Um, but I would say with us, we actually have to go above um, because it, health data is incredibly sensitive. So you need to edge cases. What happens if the, you, you prove that we can't see the data? That's important. Okay. You prove that the doctor is incredibly secure on his side. Yeah. What happens if the doctor dies? And don't make, don't scare me like that. Oh no, people people said that to me, and then I was the lawyer said that to me, and I was just like, oh god, because then how do we provide access to that data back to the patients if we've made it so secure that only that doctor can log in? So we have to look at those edge cases. Obviously, if you're dealing with less sensitive data, they're gonna they're gonna come at you a little less. But you've got ISO accreditation standards in Germany. You have the BSI. Just read everything and do it and build it yourself. Don't 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 over rely. Um, and also check where your data is being stored. Some of your uh, cloud providers will tell you that it doesn't leave Germany, but it does. Because um, the NSA could ask for it and then they'd have to give it. So just, just like these are things that we're having to deal with. Well, now you know. Um, <laughs> Amir can also help you for a small piece of your company's equity, your <laughs> data protection and, and GDPR questions. Um, but no, it's a very good, good point around building that trust. And, and back to you, Lara. You know, you're selling a private pension product to millennials. I'm not going to make any jokes about millennials, but how do you transform this rather boring topic into something relatable for the audience? Well, what we what we do is we do it on a. I mean, of course, we have an amazing, amazing person in our team thinking about about branding and, and who is very creative. But um, on the other hand, we do it on a trial and error basis, right? So we, so we again, we talk to people, we, we test uh, many different value propositions, many different landing pages, so we get an understanding for um, what do people want and what, does what makes people leave their email. Um, but in the end, it's so far where we have gotten the best, uh, the best uh, input is literally from user interviews, potential customer interviews, where they literally talk to you and they like they give you that your next campaign on a silver silver platter, essentially. Do you have a good good story to tell of one of them? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for example, there was this one woman. So women are a, a big thing for us because they 
there's uh, there's many of them trying to get their their financials uh, in order and want to save up for their for their pension as well without being uh, dependent on their mostly mostly husbands so there's this one woman coming in and she's talking about yeah that she has been researching hours literally i mean who researches hours for their uh, regarding their private pension and she's telling me about these uh, this facebook group where where women uh, come together and talk to each other and give each other advice regarding um, financial financial sa savings and, and financial problems in general and from what she told me i could go into this group right and i could talk to the owner of the group and i found this entire universe of um, women who are trying to be financially independent which of course for us is like a like a freaking gold mine in this case yeah cool and um if we switch briefly to fundraising yeah. we'll, we'll jump around a little bit about mm -hmm. topics yeah. um both of you have very compelling stories about what you're tackling who it's for and how you're going to address the market mm -hmm. but you know investors can be quite cynical w what's been the hardest part about fundraising samir go for it so uh, there's lots. I'm just it's difficult to choose. I would actually say uh, I'll just sort of open up my heart to you guys and just give you really honest trash talk me. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a combination of balancing confidence and humility. Um, you need to be able to instill a level of confidence in an investor that you can do this. You need to balance it with humility to make them like you because if they don't like you, they will not invest in you. I, I, I don't know if it's possible. Have you ever invested in somebody you really didn't like? Because I, I think there is an emotional uh, part of this. Um, so as, as a CEO, I found that it's, it was a really good growth opportunity for me personally because I've had occasions in my past where I came across quite arrogant and I know this and it was, uh, it was something that I really tried not to do but at the same time I had to have this inner steel of we are doing this whether you invest or not we're doing this because it needs to be done we may fail somebody else will do it because it needs to be done we're going to do it kind of thing but at the same time you you, you, you have to, uh, you do need the investor and you do need their help and you have to be humble enough to accept it. So it's this kind of don't beg. That, that for me was, was, was a big challenge, just for me personally. Mara? Um, Till is probably going to kill me for this now. But um, in, so in my experience, it was also to find the balance between bullshitting and talking really about what you're trying to do. Right, so this is because because then you go you go around and you talk to investors and you just wanna you're just trying to tell them what you're trying to build and um, that it's super exciting, but what they wanna hear is some Bitcoin blockchain AI thingy, um, which is yeah, which is uh, hard to find. It's at least for me, this was uh, this is where I personally grew. This is for me where where I had to find the thing. Like this is why I'm sending uh, tilt to these things mostly, because I'm not. <laughs> Sorry, I have, I have one, one more really quick one. Go for it. Um, and finding investors who will give you more than 15 minutes for the first conversation. Mm. Um, if you have a big story to tell, right, you want to have that time to explain it, and they're just like skip to the end, yeah? That is painful, but they'll kind of all do it to you. So finding a way to either tell your story incredibly quickly or be able to convince the other person to give you more time is, is 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 something that you somehow need to find a balance. The, the only way to get around that is to get a really good introduction from someone they already trust, and then I feel like you get an extra 20 minutes. Um, nice. Yeah. Well, I, I know that a lot of questions are going to probably pop up on, on some of those comments, but I'm, I'm just going to throw my two cents. I think the four things that I have seen to, to, to answer to your points, 
the four things that I have seen drive conversion on an investor, and I need to write a blog post about this, but the first one is FOMO, how good you are creating that fear of missing out an investor. The second one is, do you have any metrics to show? Like if you have metrics and you have no FOMO, that it's probably like you're just really bad at, at selling yourself, but you can generally have FOMO without even trying just by having great metrics. And then the other two are probably the, the less obvious ones. One of them is grit. Um, it took, I think, the record fundraising conversations that one of our founders has had was 85 no's before their first yes. Just the perseverance of going through that. And the last one is relationships. Is the amount of relationships you have, uh, I don't know, there must be some sort of proportionality, logarithmic or whatever, to what that is relative to your speed to closing a round. But the more relationships you have, it substantially reduces your closing speed. So that's, that's my, what I've seen helps quite a bit. I don't know if you guys relate to that. Maybe what, what we move on to now is a little bit about sort of where we are. You know, Germany, Europe, UK. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts about starting a company that can maybe at the first seed stage look like it's maybe too specific about one geography. And, you know, we're about building global businesses here. So how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile global expansion, world domination, and local markets? Laura? Well, in our case, um, as you as you mentioned before, there is this the, the the pain in private pension is especially strong uh, strong in Germany right now. But uh, in any case, our our uh, our target group and the people that are that are most uh, mostly into saving for their retirement, they live everywhere. And we have looked into, I mean, honestly, to, to be very honest with you, we're super early, so we haven't even launched yet. But we have looked in, into, into different kinds of markets. For example, uh, Poland is, uh, is uh, some very interesting, very interesting uh, people over there who, who are potentially willing to, to start saving with us. So, but again, it's for us, it's very early in this case. Okay, but you're thinking about incrementally. Exactly, the yeah. The closest markets and then exactly. you move from there. Exactly. How about you, Samir? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Germany's great, just just to be clear. So I, I'm from London, um, and I've built businesses there. And I've worked in Hamburg, in Berlin, in the Philippines, and in Hong Kong, and a few other places. But I think Berlin is, is, is really special, and Germany is a great place to prove your... If you can do Germany, you can kind of do Europe. And then if you can do Europe, mm -hmm. you can probably do the US, right? Um, so it's a great place to build a business. I, I, I would say the one thing that scares me about Berlin a little bit is how founders get treated here sometimes. Um, very little equity sometimes, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, there's, there's this kind of like this thing where a lot of founders here I know have like one, two, three, four percent equity in their company, and then they're still expected to have that, that determination and that, that drive to go forward. Um, as far as uh, internationalization is concerned, sorry, um, DAC region is usually relatively easy if you can do Germany quite well, so Switzerland, Austria. So for us, th they're relatively easy. And we're lucky because the market we're in is kind of a problem almost everywhere. Um, countries like Estonia actually have really good national digital infrastructure for health, and some of the Nordics as well. Um, India has a really cool startup called Practo, and uh, they're, they're doing kind of similar things that we want to do, but they're doing it in India, and they're doing really well and raise lots of money. The US is also really interesting because there's some decent startups there, but also the same problems. The UK has the same problems, so we certainly have aspirations to be a, a, global, a global player. Well, with you know, the, the fact that you're so early, there gives you a lot of flexibility to adapt as you go, but there's got to be some decisions you've made already that you're already regretting. So have you made any decisions now that 
have come and bit you in the ass uh, already, Laura. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's this w one one thing especially. So if I any the biggest advice I can give you when you choose a name <laughs> for your company, check if it's trademarkable very early on because we are currently spending a lot of time in finding a new company name, brand name, so don't get too attached to bricks, I beg you. Um, so this is something, I mean, it's not, it is doable, right? But it's, I mean, we're launching our alpha and we're connecting to a very old school bank with a very new digital product. And then again, we're six people, we have to find a new uh, brand name. So this is something I would, if I were you, <laughs> always double check. I have to be really honest and say so far, no. So far, no. But I guarantee it will happen. It will definitely happen. You know, when, when people answer that question, there's one subsequent question that begs asking, is team. Mm. Sometimes when the problems aren't outside, they're inside. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like da no, no, air it's any it's dirty laundry here, but it's, it's how do you guys think about managing your team, hiring, <laughs> founder, co-founder relationships? Walk us through that. So from uh, one thing we're really lucky in, and I would keep this in mind if you, uh, for everybody, uh, our mission has made hiring, like I've done, like I used to be the CMO of, of, of Credit Tech. I don't know if you know this one, it's a big data for credit scoring. I used to look after growth for Badoo, which was this dating app for like just finding people near you. What you're creating will affect how easy it is to hire, right? Um, especially when you're so early, like pre-seed, we can't pay the big bucks. So the fact that we have a strong socially driven mission, it's, been, it's made hiring really easy for us. When I say easy, it's just because I know how hard it can be. It's still hard, but some of the guys are just like, I love this and I've worked as a doctor or my uncle's a doctor or I'm a part-time medic. Like half of our team have that kind of, that, that, that desire. Um, as far as co-founders are concerned, again, I'm quite lucky. Um, I'm quite relatively well connected because of just years of working in startups. So, so for example, my COO is incredibly reliable. Yeah. And then uh, you know that whole CEO, COO dynamic, right? It's almost like one of you faces outside, one of you faces inside. And to have that person that you can rely upon to, while you're out there, maybe talking to investors, getting stuff done. And I've seen other startups just really struggle with that is amazing. And then when you have other guys, like for example, our neurosurgeon, right? He's never done startups before. He's a brain surgeon. He's used to having hands inside brains. So it could be easy for me to get frustrated if maybe he doesn't understand some of the things I know because it's all I've done since I graduated from archaeology at university, right? But the reality is this, this guy is a brain surgeon, yeah? And he's intelligent, is hardworking, and adds a lot of value to the business. So it's my job as a CEO not to get uh, focused on maybe things he can't do, but focus on all the amazing things he can bring to the company. So that, that of course, there are things to be discussed there, but I don't see them as problems. Okay, before you answer, Laura, I'm just going to remind you, um, have your questions ready. Uh, I think this will be, ma I'll have maybe one more question for you guys, and then and then we'll open up to, to the audience. Um, well, in our case, when it comes to the co-founder topic, I have been found by Till, so you're going to have to talk to Till about it. Um, and regarding the, the employee topic, it's very similar with us um, than it is with you but people are interested in solving this problem because it affects themselves, right? So the applications we get are people are saying, oh my God, I have looked into this and it sucks and I want to be part of fixing it because it affects me personally. Um, and the, however, the, the hard part is that 
finding German natives, um, especially, so if you know anyone, we're looking for a growth marketer to, um, to support us. Um, finding German natives is in Berlin <laughs> is uh, ridiculously hard. Um, so this is something. And then we're also looking to hire more women because yeah, it's uh, me and the guys uh, so far. So if you know a woman who's into growth marketing, please refer her to us. Yeah, so this. So last question from me um, before we hand it over. What, what keeps you up at night? What, it's the, what are the nightmare inducing? By the way, I had a funny dream the other day. I, I was really struggling with autocomplete and my dream. Like that was the thing that I was having nightmares about. That's how much emails I have to do on the phone. All right, your turn. What's your worst nightmare? I, I, have, I actually had two nightmares recently and I've never had nightmares in my life and they're both really, really weird. One of them, um, I murdered someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was living in my childhood house and there's an alleyway beside the house and I hid the body there because I don't know what to do with a body. And then everybody was just wanting to go there for some reason and I was super stressed out about keeping them away. And then I ap apparently had murdered them in a hotel room but used somebody else's credit card and they were like, oh, there's something weird about my statement. I'm going to go check it. And I was trying to convince them not to. And I woke up at like 6 a.m., went back to sleep and it carried on. And um, that happened. And then a week later, this is even weirder. So in England, we have like Princess and uh, Pr Prince William and his wife, and they have this really adorable little girl. And I was with them uh, sightseeing in a place with sand. And uh, we we got we got lost, and I lost their child, the 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 the, <laughs> the little girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so stressed running around looking for her. And then I, I, I was in a cabin and uh, I just remember that like um, Prince William, I didn't know where he was. And then I got mud on my trousers and I'd taken them off. And then he came in and I was trying <laughs> to pull my trousers on. And I couldn't pull my trousers on. And I couldn't pull my trousers on. And I couldn't pull my trousers on. I woke up. And um, so you tell me. <laughs> what, pro what problems are making me have these weird dreams? So I'll tell you what. I, I don't know what those dreams mean. Anybody here an interpretive psychologist? Yeah. But I'll tell you one thing. I know that if your dreams are that stressful, entrepreneurship's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but in, in all seriousness, um, I, the thing that's really, really important for me is when you're, especially pre-seed, and do you know when you're getting people to come work with you for free at the beginning and they, they give up their careers and they, and they move over, you're, as a CEO, I feel incredibly responsible that the company succeeds because I, 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 even though it's wrong, by the way, I shouldn't feel guilty for them taking the opportunity, but I do. So the company's succeeding for everybody in the company to uh, feel like it was, it was a worthwhile thing is really important to me, and that, that plays on my mind. I always check the bank account every single day. I log in online and I just check how much money's in there. I'm still at that stage where like one invoice gets paid. And I'm like, what was that? You know. <laughs> but to be completely honest, I think the, the my job is to be calm. So as much as it is super stressful, if I'm not calm, then my company wouldn't be calm. Um, but yeah, I, I am having weird dreams. So something something's happening. Cool, Laura. Yeah, I'm not gonna share my weird uh, nightmares <laughs> because it, it would be until now, it's, it's too weird. <laughs> but whatever is keeping me up, um, I mean, uh, ASAP, I think, is mainly literally compliance these days. So um, it's really hard to build a, a user-friendly product and being compliant at the same time and collaborating with a, with a, I mean, we're super lucky to have this bank on board, but with a very old school bank um, and you're trying to build something new with them. And so I've, I mean, they created an extra hotline for us because I call every day about five times. 
So this is what's keeping me up at night. Like, yeah, this is, it's great. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, guys, audience, questions? Um, question number one is, like, when, you know, in the very early stage of, your, uh, of you building a startup, that you will face a chicken and egg kind of problem where you like, need to um, have a team member and pay them, but then you don't have the fund to pay them, but then you also need to present it to the investor, and then you're like, you don't have a team, but then, you know, how do you solve that chicken and egg problem? Because you need to raise funds to hire these people, but you don't have the fund to hire these people, but then like, you need a team member to actually build stuff. That's question number one. Question number two is, what are some of the really good tactics that you have to create FOMO, which is what you have mentioned before, to the investors? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm happy to answer really quickly from, from my perspective. So the first thing is my, my co-founders and I, we basically worked for free uh, for like six months. So obviously not everybody's in a position to do that. Um, so that was my way. You know, we just, we just ate ramen a lot of ramen noodles. Um, the, for the, for the, uh, it's actually, I'd say it's even, a, it's more an important story and a more universal story about your first hires once you have some money. Because those guys, you need to convince them to take a much lower salary. And that's, that's something that we all have to deal with. Mission's important, equity is important. Don't be, don't be greedy, you know? Like, uh, if you get people who you truly believe um, are gonna add value and help you build your business, um, reward them. Um, don't be greedy with equity. Um, good people wouldn't don't appreciate it. Um, and your second question, the FOMO. Um, it, I was lucky because I had some good introductions from uh, a successful startup founder. So it gives you a tiny bit of extra credibility. And then you kind of got to speak to a few of them. Getting your first yes is the hardest thing and then the rest comes along nicely because you gotta like kind of tell the other guys that you already have some money committed um, my, my recommendation would be get as much angel funding as you possibly can because say for example you're raising four five six seven eight hundred thousand if you already have three four hundred thousand from angels then uh, good ones ideally some of them um, then I guess my impression is the the uh, investors take you a little bit more seriously and that money's a hell of a lot easier to get um, so yeah that and that my advice is that get as much angel money as possible hmm. um, regarding regarding the FOMO topic I uh, I agree with you 100% so you need to convince one <laughs> and a good one and then the rest will so we I mean of course, after we've convinced Seedcamp, everybody wanted to uh, to come on board. Um, but um, that's that's really it. If you if you if you manage to get one good investor's interest, um, and as you said, if you manage to say, yeah, we have we have uh, some people interested already, it's it's a good a good formal um, helper. And regarding the the employee and equity and money topic. The first people that will start to work with you, they don't do it because of the money. So they will do it because they are interested in building a company and they are interested in working with you and uh, interested in doing something, building something on their own. So it's going to be much of a, in our case at least, we had, um, we had, we had people work for four to five months for free next to their freelance job um, but then again they got compensated in, in equity accordingly and um, of course these are startups and the, the salary will be lower but it's it's um, as Samir said it's more about uh, the inner motivation than it is about about the money 
and you'll you'll also have a decision to make at some point, hopefully, which is uh, say you have like two or three investors that you're speaking to and they're interested, mm. they're going to want to know who else you're speaking to, right? And I, I know some uh, some entrepreneurs hide it because they actually are afraid the investors will speak behind their back and try and create a deal, right? But I put these guys in the same kind of guys who ask you to sign an NDA because they don't want to tell you about their, their idea to do a startup, right? Uh, the way I did it was I, I, I basically told all of the investors the exact people I was talking to, and I said, I'm happy for you guys to speak amongst yourselves. FOMO, huh? Uh, well, exactly, because ultimately, if, 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 if they were to get together and try and uh, push me into a corner, I, I, I would have said, I don't want these investors. Um, and we had decent angel backing to at least get us a little way forward. Um, but what I found happened was it was just became a much more open process. And yeah, the, the, like I said, I think Seedcamp were really good to deal with because they don't. They, they, there's this little bit of an American, like element in there that I, I, it's not literally American. That's how I define Silicon Valley kind of thing. Where like they're not gonna. I, I find it's it's not. They don't seem to think pushing your valuation down is in their best interest. If they believe you're a good startup and they believe you're going to be successful, then what the hell's the point? And that's the kind of I like that. Yeah, and then. We also had Target Global, and it was it felt the same. They were more interested in you, the business, and what you were going to do than trying to push down valuations or to, uh, things like that. So, um, I guess the the, the, the follow-up point is: choose good investors. Don't just go after any money you can get if you can, because there's a lot more value add that you can get from from good investors. Cool. I think um, we have time for not that much more questions. All right. Sorry, um, I took the opportunity and the question goes back to you Carlos based on uh, what the two just uh, told us and that is how much effort do you actually put into evaluating the why founders are doing what they are doing or why they started the company? So the, I mean there's an element of this which is culture. So you, you get that not directly from the founder, you get it from some of the other people around the team. So you get a vibe, like how much of it's a vibe that is is authentic, but the why? I mean, look, I think I'd love to be able to tell you that you you speak to a founder and they're like, you know, I had this massive problem, and and actually, ironically, both Lara and Samir actually talk like that's something that is deeply ingrained in in, in their identity. But not all not all founders are like that. I think it's more about those four other things. It's like some people just really have a drive and they just want to do something, and that drive is is the, the thing. It's, it's a, a why that has nothing to do with the specific market. And so, yeah, it's, it's not always clear that it's like, oh, because this thing happened negatively in my life, ergo, I must solve this. This isn't the salvation element all the time. So you had a question? Um, yeah, it's about the healthcare thing. Um, how do you convince doctors to buy into your service, like to, to make them trust you? Is it just that your prototype is so good or is it the technology you're using? and how many did you approach before you started to get to investors? For sure. Um, so to, uh, I guess the first thing is I came into this thinking the same thing that probably most people are thinking, right? A German doctor, uh, I, his idea is this old kind of like man who um, doesn't like change and just wants to go on holiday, you know, this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> this, did, this, this, was, this was dispelled very quickly. Um, we went out there just to understand doctors, just spend some time with us, friends and family, like introducing us to doctors and spending time. Honestly, I remember I, I, name, naming no names, but one of the doctors that we went to go see was approaching 70 years old. And I remember when we were on the way, we were like, why, why, are, we, why are we doing this, you know? And within 10 minutes of speaking, he said, I love this. 
I love this and I want to invest. I love this and I want to invest and I have other doctors I can introduce you to. So um, they're value driven. Go to a doctor in my experience and say, oh, we have like video conferencing or we have um, a chatbot or we have this and they'll say, okay, cool. Tell a doctor what you can achieve for him. Oh, we can cut the administrative time in your practice by 50%. They won't believe you, but they'll let you try and prove it to them. Um, so th that's the first thing. Um, it's a big market. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, which is a lot of doctors hate what they currently have. Show them that you understand their pain. Show them that you value their work, and, and how can you not, right? It's like they're, they're public servants. They, they help us live better. And, and, and show them that you, you're more akin to giving a calculator to an accountant who is using an abacus as opposed to trying to replace doctors with computers. Um, and then it's a combination, it's an incredibly connected network. They all study together, they all work together, they all, so once you get some on side, you get more on side. And um, yeah, we have an innovation practice uh, thing where practices now can join up with us and they will get our product for free for pretty much ever. All they have to do is they have to test our product, they have to give us feedback on our product, they let us go to their practice, spend time with them. And so we're kind of a, a, pra a company that has doctors in the company, so we're built by doctors. We're collaborating with the community, so it's built with doctors, and it's really for doctors, because even though our vision goes bigger than that, which is to, to help people be healthier, um, step one isn't to build modular things around the doctor who's struggling away every day, it's to help the doctor. Okay, one last question for Lara. How did you approach the, the first bank to, to get your pro product? Because I, I will have the same problems, like I'm a, small startup and I have approached mm. a big bank to kind of deal, how do you... So you should go out there and you should find the bank that is has the least corporations with fintechs because banks have a huge innovation budget and they usually have a chief digital officer who is like whose butt is on fire because he needs to do some innovative stuff and needs to do some corporations with startups. And then you go and reach out to this bank and you try to convince this bank. This is what I would, yeah, <laughs> give you as a tip. Any other quick questions? All right. Uh, how many investors or angels did you uh, approach before you get your first yes? Okay, number. <laughs> Till you need to say the number, I don't know. What's our number? <laughs> 50. 25. 25. 25. Yeah, yeah. I think the answer is you'll get loads. Don't worry about it because those, those investors weren't right for you. Cool. All right. Natasha's telling me that it's time to move on to drinks. Feel free to email us. Uh, feel free to uh, get in touch with the founders. And thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.